Interviewing as a technique of gaining information is as old as humankind. Talking to people as a form of scientific inquiry about their experiences is fun, but also a methodological, moral and theoretical challenge. In the past decades, oral history has become a widely used research method in different disciplines. Given that oral history is a technique and a way of constructing histories, this series of podcasts tries to offer an overview of different ways of how to construct the information and how to analyze it in a wider methodological context. This podcast is designed for those who want to use interviewing as a method of collecting empirical material. It consists of eight sections. The first one is discussing oral history developments, basically the historiography. The second one is analyzing the politics of oral history, who are those who are using interviewing for political reasons. The third one is connecting the social and personal level. The fourth one is discussing ethical and legal dimensions. The fifth one is about practicalities, what to do, how to do, what not to do. The next one is discussing questions and questioning. The seventh one is discussing narrativity, as oral history is using narratives and to understand stories. And the last one, the eighth one, is about interpretation, how to analyze oral history, what are the limits and the possibilities. Every podcast is around 20 minutes each. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will find this podcast series useful. the second uh, uh, podcast about politics of oral history, because that's what we are, why we are doing oral history, because oral history has got a unique potential uh, to uh, speak about uh, issues which had been previously uh, uh, neglected or uh, which had been previously unaddressed. So again, I would like to start this uh, uh, podcast with a quote, which is a, a quote from uh, Reinhardt's classic text uh, uh, from 1992 uh, about feminist oral history. So what is this feminist oral history? So the quote says, uh, by listening to women speak, understanding women's membership in particular social systems, and establishing the distribution of phenomena accessible only through sensitive interviewing, feminist researchers have uncovered previously neglected or misunderstood words of experience. So what are the key words here, which would actually you know, talk about the uh, feminist oral history? First is listening, right? So listening is a skill, and it's also something what you have to learn when you are doing oral history. Because you are so enthusiastic about your topic and your research, then you are immediately, you know, you want to ask questions, you want to comment, you want to intervene. On the other hand, you really have to listen. So this classic rule in oral history is this 15-second silence. And this 15 seconds is a long time. So let's test what is this 15 seconds.
So if you are still listening to this podcast, that was a 15-second silence, what you are expected to, um, uh, to keep when uh, the interview is, uh, is silent. So this listening is a skill so you, that you have to put the interviewee first, and then you are listening to the, uh, to the story. Uh, to speak, so we are talking about an orally transmitted story, so you, uh, uh, with all its importance as far as the politics of sounds, um, is concerned understanding women's membership in a particular social system. Understanding has got this kind of um, uh, clearest, a kind of you know, top-down uh, kind of connotation, but that's not what oral history is doing. So it is not me who is going into the field and trying to understand, but the understanding here in this quote means that you are trying to uh, create a relational uh, relationship, a kind of mutual relationship. And uh, uh, how difficult is that? I will talk about this later. In a particular social system, uh, this membership. The particular social system can be a family, can be a party, can be the Ministry of Education, can be, you know, uh, uh, women's activism. So we are basically looking at the structural systems which are influencing women's position uh, in this um, uh, particular society. Establishing the distribution of phenomena accessible only through sensitive interviewing. So basically, you are asking questions which you could not get via doing archival research. So you are not question, asking the question, when were you born? Or uh, those issues uh, which you know, have left a, a track record in, in documentation. But you are asking about meanings, feelings, and experiences. So when um, uh, the sensitive interviewing, that means that you are not imposing the questions. You are not forcing uh, the interviewee to, uh, to speak about their uh, experiences. You are an oral historian. You are not a judge. You are not a psychoanalyst. You are not an investigator. But you are somebody who is interested in past events described told by those who participated in it. So uh, the uh, interviewing may, the interviewing is the way how you can actually get these meanings and understandings, right? And uh, therefore, the preparation for this interviewing is crucial because you need to know what are the sources out there, right? And of course, um, and I will be talking about this later when we are talking about the analysis of these interviews, that in what sense can you use the written records uh, to compare and contrast with the oral records. But here I just would like to uh, say that he, uh, the researchers are uncovering previously neglected or misunderstood words of experience. So you are not getting information but you are getting certain experiences narrated. And if you understand this as a political statement, because these stories were never told, they haven't been discussed. Let me bring in my uh, uh, 
research on interviewing women who were raped by the Red Army soldiers. These women were never talking about these stories, and there was no social space till uh, the late 1990s to talk about these stories at all. So therefore, when you are uh, uh, when you you have decided to make a project, the politics of oral history starts with your decision what kind of project you are deciding to do. And the decision to tell the story is a political decision. Not only because here we are at CEU in this very privileged um, position that you have got you know, uh, this MA uh, thesis as a possibility for writing a, uh, a great and meaningful and politically informed project, but also the possibility to go out uh, and uh, uh, and do projects, they are all political and they are all connected to certain ethical issues of uh, feminist scholarship. I use this term giving voice, and there are lots of criticism towards this, uh, about this concept of uh, giving voice, oral history as a process of giving voice. Let me address some of these issues. Uh, giving voice uh, actually implies that those whom you are interviewing, they did not have the voice before they have met you. And that is fundamentally wrong, because these people had already had a life before they met you, right? And they will continue, hopefully, to have a life after they have met you, right? But this kind of meeting is actually changing your life and their life at the same time. So your life will be changing because you are meeting and you are working with these exceptional individuals, and their lives will be also changing because this is a moment for reflection about what kind of life they are uh, actually, they, what kind of life they have lived, and how this um, uh, can be narrated. This giving voice is coming from this emp the, uh, the tradition of empowerment to empower women, this consciousness-raising uh, uh, framework of, um, um, of oral history. And this has got serious you know, issues and criticism in the, in, the previous, um, uh, in the past years, which are very legitimately underlying this uh, top-down uh, uh, element of, the, of, uh, of doing oral history. On the other hand, I would like to give three arguments why this giving voice can be still useful today. Uh, first of all, uh, because it creates a written record. So when these people are actually interviewed, they are creating, uh, uh, based on the interviews, you are actually doing a transcript, and hopefully that transcript will be accessible. So you are basically creating a, a written record about those who were previously haven't been interviewed or those who haven't left any written um, uh, uh, records left, have, haven't left any records. Of course, it's very different if you are interviewing kind of uh, politicians or high-profile intellectuals or whatever, but still, this is an alternative uh, channel to create um, uh, documentation. And I have to say that we should acknowledge that there is a kind of uh, uh, priority of the written records over the orality. 
So no matter that uh, we all believe that oral tradition is equally you know, important as the written tradition, we also have to acknowledge that this oral tradition needs to be recorded, needs to be captured in order to give a space in the uh, intellectual uh, uh, horizon. So this giving voice is actually a, doc a humble documentation uh, uh, activity. Uh, secondly, it un uncovers a completely undocumented material. So as I pointed out before, you are basically getting information, experiences. This is the term uh, which was used by Reinhardt, the previously neglected or misunderstood words of experience. Uh, those issues, experiences, which hadn't been in the focus of uh, previous research. And here comes the politics of doing oral history, because your decision, what kind of questions to ask, they are all informed by your political agenda. So none of your questions are innocent. There is not an innocent question, right? Uh, so your political agenda matters. So therefore, when you are doing your project, you have to reflect on your political stance. And also, you have to take into the consideration the issue of serendipity. That very often, you know, serendipity comes in and helps your project. Sometimes it ruins it, but you know, let's focus on the good things today. So let me give you one example from my research. So I was giving a, a talk about the uh, uh, women in the Aerocross Party, which is the Hungarian Nazi Party during the Second World War. It was a public talk for a kind of uh, uh, public audience. And then at the end of my talk, an elderly gentleman came to me and mentioned that, have you heard about Piroska Deli? This is a Hungarian name. And uh, of course, I, uh, I heard because he's, uh, she is one of the uh, uh, most um, uh, well-known uh, Aerocross women, a high-profile person. And then he told me, I met her. And this sentence, what he told me after this talk, I met her. This changed the whole project I did about the women in the Aerocross Party because I started interviewing, I started to talk about those who actually um, um, were a part of this uh, uh, um, uh, process, uh, putting her on, on trial in 1945. And then that became a book. So one sentence can really change your whole project. And that's why oral history is so appealing, because you are getting lots of interesting and important um, feedback. And the third point why giving voice is actually important is that this is Daphne Pataille's word, that it writes the injustice, that it has got this um, political agenda to uh, that you are trying to make things right, right? That there is an issue and there are problems that you feel that they matter. And then you are actually doing it. And um, of course you can you know, criticize this as a kind of outclearist um, attitude. On the other hand, I believe that this is the way how we should move forward. A kind of intellectual activism uh, should change the world. So, what makes feminist oral history? Uh, first of all, it creates new material. It is new material in several senses. It is new because it hasn't been uh, discussed. 
uh, hasn't been discussed, that has, hasn't been uh, documented. And uh, uh, also, it's a new material because it is basically informed by the interviews and the, uh, and the material coming from the individuals who are in this particular uh, context. Uh, and it's a new material because it is new for you as a researcher. So if you are a good researcher, your material is constantly informed and interacting with the interview material. So it's this loop, namely that you're, you are coming in with a certain reflection on the particular material, and on the other hand, these uh, uh, research questions and hypotheses constantly changes based on the um, uh, on the experience you are gathering uh, through the uh, in the field. Uh, it's a new material because this is always about groups which hadn't been discussed. Of course, you can very uh, of, of you can say that um, um, what happens when you are interviewing the minister of culture. But hopefully, you are interviewing that Minister of Culture coming from a very different uh, intellectual background and coming with different questions than the usual uh, um, uh, journalists. It validates experiences. It means that when you are doing these projects and, and uh, your material has been read, then you see that what is normal, what is considered to be normal, can be really reconceptualized and reconsidered. It also enhances communication. So you are going to talk to people whom you uh, haven't been uh, talked uh, before. You are getting into environments. You are getting into spaces where you haven't been. Of course, there is a specific genre, which is the in-group research. When you are a part of the community, what you are actually researching. But then it is also an interesting point how you are actually uh, uh, positioning yourself at the same time as a part of the group and also as a part of, as a person out, who is outside. Uh, it discovers, uh, oral history discovers roots and cartography of resistance. Because you are asking about experiences, therefore you are actually asking, what did you do? How did you react? What was your assessment of the situation? And through those questions, you are actually trying to uh, figure out how these people whom you are actually in the, uh, interviewing reacted, resisted to a particular power structure. So therefore, these kind of questions show you this micro-resistance and different uh, uh, possibilities and spaces how this uh, resistance is happening. It also creates a continuity among women in a sense that I have to say that um, there are very few things I'm very proud in my life, but this research project I did with uh, 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 neo-Nazi and conservative women in the early 2000s is one of them, because I'm still with uh, kind of uh, speaking relation to them. So if we meet in social occasions or on the streets, they are still greeting me and we have got some, you know, uh, nice small talk. So in a sense that no matter that I'm obviously not a neo-Nazi conservative woman, and my book was uh, awarded by this prize of the Hungarian Academy of Sciences, still they felt themselves properly represented in the book. 
And I think that's the maximum what you can achieve in there in oral history, namely that those whom you are not agreeing, they are accepting your work, they are actually grateful for your work because you put something into the uh, spotlight which previously hadn't been there, and they consider that work important and valid for them. So they are reading this book and they are reflecting on the issues which had been addressed in this book. So that is the maximum what you can achieve in, in, uh, in oral history, and I'm very proud of that particular achievement. And later on, I will talk about the difficulties, how was, uh, to, what to do with, uh, how to achieve that. Um, I already mentioned the point of uh, correcting what is normal. So just going back to this uh, interview project about neo-Nazi and conservative women. So it, for example, these women, these very conservative women, some of them had abortion, some of them had uh, you know, extramarital affairs, some of them had got uh, affairs uh, uh, with, uh, uh, you know, with very got into very complicated relationships, and still they consider themselves conservative. So in a sense, it, somehow it shows how the meanings of the words and the meanings of certain ideological categories had been changed and can be changed through interviewing and contrasting it with certain experiences and practices and narrated practices. Uh, how, why this is a feminist oral history? Because it is using gender as an analytical concept, right? So gender as an analytical concept, not as a descriptive category, but as an analytical concept, as Joanne Scott so nicely uh, described in her works. And it generates research questions and problems from the material. So this is this magic loop I mentioned previously, namely that your questions and comments are basically uh, informed by the material and also by the questions, and there is this constant reflection during the time when you are interviewing. So when you are doing uh, this uh, interviewing, you have to address the political advocacy roots of doing oral history. And the key concepts here are the empowerment, agency, and authority. And I would like to very quickly go through these concepts uh, and then uh, 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 discussing what, it, what, are the importance, what is the importance of doing this politics. Uh, Abraham, in um, her work, uh, quotes that oral history holds the potential of both empowering and of objectifying its subject. So this is this paradox when we are doing this uh, oral history, that at the same time you are doing empowering, and everything what I have been discussing before, giving voice and documenting and creating material, it's both empowering and also objectifying, because even if you uh, listen to this sentence, I did a project on conservative and neo-Nazi women, right? They are the subjects, right? So basically you, you are making them as an object of your, of your uh, research. And, uh, 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 and it's one of the myths of oral history that uh, the, you are objectifying, that you are the uh, interviewer were objectifying your um, respondent. And I would like to share my story, which is somehow, you know, talking uh, to the article by Jesse about the interviewing uh, war criminals. When I was doing this research 
as a follow-up of this particular question, this statement, I knew her. Uh, I started interviewing those who were participating in the post-Second World War uh, uh, trials after the, uh, to investigate war crimes. And I interviewed a, a policeman who was uh, working in the Hungarian version of the KGB, which is the secret uh, police department, whose um, responsibility was to track war criminals down after 45. And you can imagine he was pretty young when he entered the police force. He was just liberated uh, uh, from, uh, 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 from Auschwitz. So he was a, a person who was very much invested and uh, found uh, his uh, uh, mission in this work. And I was interviewing him. But he was working for the Hungarian secret police between 1945 as the youngest investigators, because when he entered the police force, he was 15. Uh, with the special permission of the uh, Minister of uh, uh, Home Affairs, till he retired. So he was a professional police investigator. So you can imagine that what kind of chances I had as an oral historian with a professional police investigator who was, a, who was an elderly man whose profession was to get all the secrets from everybody. So immediately the power relations you know, flopped and uh, flipped, and, and then I was the person who was interrogated. So, therefore, I just would like to take from this story an important uh, conclusion from oral history that you have got all these myths and understandings about what oral history is about, uh, uh, you know, thinking about how to uh, object uh, to fight against objectification of the uh, of the interviewees uh, starting from you know giving voice but everything depends on your research project so i would like to uh, uh, underline this particular import uh, the importance of your project and to contextualize in taking into consideration the particular political and ethical issues. Uh, because Abrams also points out that oral histories are not innocent academic engagement, but it's a kind of element of political projects of resistance. So every project is a form of resistance because you are doing um, something which hasn't been done before and you have got your own political issue. So uh, what you would like to um, uh, do, how you are actually doing this resistance, how this protest and resistance are happening, it is starting with planning your project, continues with uh, telling the stories, it continues with sharing your stories with others and documenting it. So, these are the key phases, and that's why, you know, in the future I will be talking about how to plan a project, what kind of issues there about uh, telling and sharing and documenting. And everything depends on the so-called ideological context, and that's Zangster's term, because every story is not only interpreted, but told in a particular ideological context. It, you, as a researcher, you also have a kind of ideological luggage, but also the interviewee. And I would like to finish this podcast uh, uh, now with telling a story about um, uh, this research I did about the first female political journalist in Hungary, whose name is Erzsébet Rácz, who was the daughter of the Minister of um, 
uh, war during the Second uh, World War, and he was the she was the uh, this journalist was the first one who actually traveled to Italy and wrote these fabulously enthusiastic letters to uh, her father about the fascist Italy and how this you know country is blooming. And the father gave these letters to one of the uh, uh, one of his friends who is uh, who was a journalist in uh, the, this far right uh, newspapers. And this person started to publish these letters. And from this man, Elsie uh, Betrat returned to uh, Budapest. Then she became the first political journalist. There had been journalists before, but they were uh, mostly uh, reporting on social events. And um, uh, after uh, 1945, she was uh, taken to the People's Court, uh, which is this uh, court uh, uh, addressing the issues of war crimes. And she was, she was convicted for eight years of imprisonment. And this is a particularly harsh sentence because uh, uh, for being a journalist and being a female journalist, saying that she was, she engaged, and I'm quoting from the minutes of the court, she engaged in unwomanly activity of political journalism, right? And this eight years is a lot, because you, if you compare this um, uh, court trials, uh, if you kill three, five Jews, you might get the two, three years of imprisonment, right? And here you have got this very strong ideologically informed um, uh, story. So, and after 89, Elzebet was, you know, uh, uh, given a long life, uh, she petitioned for amnesty. And she was granted the amnesty in 91 with the following uh, uh, statement, and I'm voting from the court. She could not have been committing all these crimes, what the uh, uh, people's court was saying, because she was only a woman, so she was only writing those articles following uh, suggestions from the people around her. So this is after 91. So if you look at these two frames, in 1945, she was convicted because uh, she was doing this unwomanly activity of being a political journalist. In 1991, she was, uh, based, uh, she was uh, acquitted and uh, uh, through this lustration process because she was uh, she could not have done political journalism because she was a woman. So here you see that there is this continuity of kind of uh, value systems and also the way how they were actually discussing that there was this woman who first did political journalism. And after 1945, this communist-run uh, Ministry of Justice basically uh, eliminated and tried to you know, uh, trace every sign of, um, uh, you know, female activism uh, before 1945. And in 91, again, uh, as a part of the transition in Eastern Europe, women were not encouraged uh, to go for this political citizenship. On the other hand, uh, so this kind of story actually tells us that the ideological context in which these stories are actually being told matters. And we will continue from here to see how this ideological context is actually constructed.